Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Great, well, good morning, everybody. It's brilliant to be able to uh, share with you this morning. Just by way of a quick introduction, uh, my name's Sam. If you don't know me, I'm married to live. I enjoy running and uh, eating fried chicken, which is what we did. Two of those things, uh, both of those things we did yesterday, which was great. Uh, speaking of food, I wonder whether you have recovered from the Christmas binge yet. I wonder whether your highlight of Christmas was the food. Have you recovered from all the food that you no doubt ate over Christmas? I do love that for four or five days in the year, everybody has a pass to eat whatever they want, whenever they want to have it, and nobody is too bo- is, is, is bothered. Uh, we were away for Christmas visiting uh, family, two sets of family, so that meant we had two Christmas dinners, two lots of leftovers, two cheese boards, two rounds of chocolates, and I foolishly signed up to do a half marathon yesterday and was close to seeing much of that food reappear about halfway around Battersea Park. But I do wonder what sort of Christmas you had, and in particular whether it was spent with a large group or a small group or perhaps even uh, you were on your own this Christmas. Uh, in preparation for this talk, um, I was reflecting on uh, the 28 uh, Christmases that I have uh, enjoyed and which I have fond memories of. Uh, but it struck me that uh, the Christmases which really stand out to me the most were not the ones where I got everything that, were on my, that was on my wish list or where we had the best food, but rather the Christmases which stand out the most to me were where we had unusual or unexpected guests with us. Uh, The Christmases where the makeup around the dinner table uh, perhaps looked a little bit peculiar to an onlooker. Uh, Maybe this is something you can relate to. Uh, Thinking back, I remember uh, the lonely neighbor joining us uh, for Christmas dinner one time. And I remember that she actually smelt a little bit funny as if she was overcompensating with too much perfume. Or the newly divorced friend of my dad who was spending his first Christmas away from his family in 15 years. Or the sick uncle who was recovering from an infection and had just been released from hospital. Or the children who were having their first Christmas in foster care. Or the foreigners who were traveling away from home and having their Christmas away from their family. And it's those Christmases that when I was reflecting, it's those Christmases where the makeup around the dinner table is somewhat unusual that really stand out to me. Uh, Perhaps you've got similar stories, maybe not at Christmas, uh, but at other occasions throughout the years gone by, whereby you've had a meal with a group of people that to an onlooker might have looked a little bit peculiar or unusual, where there were some unexpected guests there. Um, At the time, uh, I didn't really think much of it, of those various occasions. And to be honest, I was surprised that I could list so many, um, because most weren't like that at all. In fact, most were very ordinary, and I love ordinary. Um, But it strikes me that as I reflect on those Christmases, it was those mealtimes where I I think I can clearly see Jesus in our midst. It was on those occasions where it felt that Jesus was closest by, when the strain of Christmas was intensified by the unexpected arrivals or by guests. And like I said, I love ordinary Christmas. 
There's nothing wrong with an ordinary Christmas. In fact, I've had that for many years now. But I can't help long for more of those unexpected guests, the Jesus in your midst sort of meal times. Perhaps you're, you're the same. It, maybe it shouldn't be a surprise to us that um, uh, Jesus spent much of his ministry sat around a dinner table, sharing food with all sorts of people. Uh, we're gradually working our way through Luke's gospel, uh, which has more mealtime scenes than any other gospels. Uh, some scholars say that Luke's depiction of the Christian life is best understood from a point of view of a journey. Uh, others say that Luke's depiction of the Christian life is best understood from the point of view of a banquet, of a party, of a meal being shared. Why? Because in Luke, that is where we see Jesus an awful lot of the time, in the midst of a party, a banquet, or a mealtime. And it's the stories that he tells that often revolve around a meal a party, a banquet. For instance, take the parable of the prodigal son, one of Jesus' most famous stories, which ends with a party being thrown, a meal being shared for the son who finds his home again. Or the Last Supper, a meal rich with imagery and teaching shared between Jesus and his disciples. Or at the end of Luke's gospel, a meal shared on the road to Emmaus between Jesus and two of his disciples. Well, today we're going to turn to Luke chapter 14, where we'll see three things. First, Jesus attending a festive meal, a Sabbath meal. Second, Jesus giving advice about where to sit at a party. And third, Jesus giving advice about who to invite to your party. So if you are a party planner, and that is your profession, today's passage is for you. So, uh, just as we dive into this passage, if you're somebody who likes to and finds it helpful to picture an image before you as you work your way through a passage, then in your mind's eye now, I want you to picture sitting down at the dinner table once again. Only when you look up, you're in the midst of a first century house, which means that you're not sat at the table, but you're knelt down beside the table and food is being brought out to you for you to enjoy, and there's wine being poured into your cup. And with that image before you, we're going to read Luke chapter 14, 1 to 14, and we're going to split it into two chunks. So here's verses 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Just for a moment, I want you to ask yourself the question, what motivates you? What motivates you? Are you somebody uh, who, when undertaking a task, is motivated by not getting it wrong? Or are you motivated by getting it right? And I know there's only a subtle difference uh, between the two, and your answer may depend on a whole range of variables, but just go with me for a moment. Are you more about not wanting to get something wrong, or are you more about really wanting to get something right? 
Uh, You see in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus is invited to this really rather posh dinner party or Sabbath lunch, if you like, uh, with prominent uh, Pharisees. And when Jesus arrives, Luke tells us that the Pharisees, the teachers of the the law, are carefully watching Jesus. And it's important then to be aware, we need to be aware this morning, that there was actually a set of rules which the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had constructed that were in addition to God's law, in addition to God's rules, that they had created to be like a safety net or a barrier of protection around God's rules. And as a result, it then stopped all sorts of activities happening. And one of those additional rules was that on the Sabbath day, you were not allowed to heal someone unless their life was at risk. Well, Jesus blows out of the water that human rule, that pharisaical rule, that additional rule. There is a man suffering with abnormal swelling of his body, and uh, I've no idea what that actually means, but crucially, there's no indication from Luke that this man's life is in danger. The rules would say, the additional rules would say that this man could be left for the next day. But Jesus, not motivated by not getting it wrong, and instead motivated by doing what is right, knowing that God is a God of compassion, knowing that if your child or ox was in a terrible situation, you would do something about it. Or to take the Christmas dinner scenario again, if your lonely neighbor or sick uncle or child without a family, you'd do something about it. So Jesus, even when all the eyes in the room were on him, when everyone was watching to see Jesus trip up and make a mistake, motivated by doing what was right, healed the man. So I want to ask you again, what motivates you? Are you motivated by a fear of not getting it wrong? And perhaps you might think like, Like this, what if I break that rule at work? Or what if I stand out to my colleagues at work? Or what if my neighbor thinks I'm a little bit odd? Or what if my family don't like the decision I make? Are you afraid? Or are you motivated by wanting to do it right by God? Wanting to get it right by God? How can I honor Jesus in front of my family? Where can I show my friends Jesus' love? How will I be different? to my colleagues. Uh, When Jesus is confronted with this dilemma, which is designed to trick him, motivated by what is right, Jesus asks the Pharisees and the experts of the law this question, and when they remain silent, Jesus heals the man and sends him on his way. Let's jump back into the passage then. Uh, Next, Jesus' attention uh, turns to the seating plan and the guest list. The seating plan and the guest list. So let's read together from verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take a the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said this to the host. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I wonder whether you've ever found yourself feeling totally out of place at a meal. Have you ever had that feeling where you, you are looking around the table thinking, I do not belong here? Uh, well, a couple of months ago, I found myself uh, in that position at a rather posh uh, dinner club, having a meal that was Uh, from my point of view, far above my social standing, where I experienced that moment of panic and dread when uh, I was trying to figure out which piece of cutlery to use to eat the slightly bizarre, not quite starter, not quite main course that the waiter had placed in front of me, whilst also trying not to embarrass myself in a conversation with someone who felt far more superior to me. Well, if the Pharisees thought that inviting Jesus to their meal would cause him to panic about their social status as I panicked that day, they were wrong. In fact, Luke's depiction of Jesus at the meal is, is one of actual of role reversal as, we, as it progresses from beginning to end. At first, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, had been watching Jesus closely. But now, they are the ones who are being monitored by Jesus. What's more... Where in their attempts to trap Jesus in sin, uh, they had been reduced to silence by him, now Jesus exposes their wrongdoing. So Jesus, having, uh, as having established his status as this authoritative healer and teacher in verses 1 to 6, now addresses the table and his companions directly. First to all the guests in verses 7 to 11, and then to the hosts, to the host in verses 12 to 14. But on closer inspection, if you look at these two sections, and you'll see it behind me on the screen, these two sections are bound together in their language and their structure. You'll see how the two should be read in conjunction together. Jesus is making a broader point. When you're invited to a meal, when you give a luncheon, do not, do not. But when you're invited, but when you give a banquet, then you will be then you will be. In Jesus' day, meals were used to publicize uh, and reinforce social hierarchy. Uh, Invitations to meals uh, were themselves carefully considered uh, in order to enhance or at least preserve one's social status. But here is Jesus confronting the social norms of the day. And as is the pattern of Luke's gospel, Jesus is turning them upside down. Uh, Jesus is casting a vision or painting a picture of what his kingdom is like. And it is very different to the reality that the people were living in. Uh, Jesus sits there immersed in this mealtime etiquette of the day. And through two segments of teaching, he turns what is conventional on its head. Uh, Jesus is doing far more than offering wise advice or sage counsel to his fellow guests or hosts. He is overturning socially constructed reality and replacing it with the principles of his kingdom. And the line that I want us to focus on uh, just for 
the remainder of this morning are these really amazing and powerful verses from Jesus, verse 13 and 14, where Jesus says, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the, at the resurrection of the righteous. In Jesus' kingdom, there is an expectation of what you might call radical hospitality. Uh, ultimately, the meal Jesus describes in this passage is one that cannot be repaid. Uh, it's powerful because if you've ever experienced radical hospitality yourself, you'll know that the best hospitality is that which is given and not exchanged. The best hospitality is that which is given and not exchanged. Uh, Jesus' example is one of a banquet enjoyed by the poor, the lame, who have no way of returning the generosity they have received. Uh, Jesus is instructing us that a characteristic of his kingdom and of his people are those who lavish their wealth on someone who cannot return it. Uh, how do we know that this is a fundamental characteristic of Jesus' kingdom and of his people? Well, because in a funny old way, radical hospitality is what followers of Jesus have received themselves. In a funny old way, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have received a radical hospitality from God. It is what is on offer to all of us today. Uh, Jesus offers you a seat at his table. The imagery that he paints throughout the gospel of a banquet, of a celebration, is an invitation to you to join him at that table, an invitation to his kingdom banquet. It is an invitation that can never be repaid. You are at the party, the banquet, the festive meal by God's grace and grace alone. You've received radical hospitality. Uh, John Mark Comer describes hospitality uh, as this. He says, hospitality um, is expressing the welcome of God to all through tangible acts of love, namely through giving food, shelter, and relationship. Food, shelter, relationship. I wonder which of those three you might be in a position to offer someone this week. Uh, I love that the sort of behavior that Jesus is demanding or expecting of his followers, if in put into practice, would collapse the distance between the rich and the poor, the insider and the outsider. Those barriers would be broken down. The guests at the table with Jesus, these Pharisees, the teacher of the law, they had this deep longing for God's glory and his kingdom, but they did not understand how to have their share in it. They behaved out of a fear of getting it wrong and so put barriers in place to protect the law rather than a desire to get it right. I'd love to end by um, telling you the story of uh, Rosaria Butterfield, um, who's a name that may be familiar to some of you or, or maybe not. Uh, Butterfield was uh, a professor in America at a university and whose speciality was uh, English and women's studies. And uh, her, her subject specific area was postmodern critical theory. Um, now, I did have to Google a little bit about what that meant. And I've discovered, and I'll get this wrong, but I discovered that it meant that 
uh, her basically her job was to consider the effects that religion, ideology, uh, history, society, the effects of those things had on modern culture. And to put it lightly, for most of Butterfield's life, her attitude towards Christians was that she was not a fan. In fact, she thought and believed that Bible-believing Christians were the worst, the source of, of all the issues that you might point to in society today. And long story short, uh, Butterfield was commissioned to write a, uh, a book, and the book was basically going to be all about how awful Christians were and how much damage they've inflicted on society. And so she was commissioned to write this book, and news spread. In fact, there were articles in the newspaper about writing this book, and she had to do some research, which meant spending time with some of the Christians who she'd grown to really hate. And uh, a local pastor had seen in the newspaper that she'd been commissioned to write this book, and she, the pastor had read some of her work before, and so reached out to Butterfield with an invitation saying, I've heard you've you're going to write this book. I've read some of your work. We'd love to have you over for dinner, and maybe we could have a chat. And this happened uh, more than once. Butterfield began to spend time with this pastor and his family. And over time and over meals and through that process of just spending time with each other and receiving their family's hospitality, Butterfield says that she found their family and faith more compelling than anything she had ever experienced before. Until one day, Rosaria Butterfield went um, herself, became a follower of Jesus. In fact, she did go on to write a book. But this book was titled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, which I love the title. And in it, she wrote, she wrote this quote. Radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth radically ordinary hospitality, radical hospitality. At Butterfield experienced hospitality and ultimately led to her becoming a follower of Jesus. And the point is that Jesus' kingdom is one of radical hospitality, whether you're entering into it via God's own radical hospitality or whether you yourself are offering radical hospitality. And I'll, why don't the, the band come back up? Because I'd love to end with these words of Jesus. And the words are taken straight from our passage today. But this time I want to read to you from the message translation of the Bible. Because I think it puts it so eloquently as it calls us to this lifestyle of radical, loving hospitality. Uh, why don't you um, stand with me? And as you do, um, could you close your eyes or make yourself comfortable in a way that you can reflect on these words from Jesus. And Jesus says in verses 12 to 14, then he turned to the host, the next time you put on a dinner, don't just invite your friends and family and rich neighbors, the kind of people who will return the favor. Invite some people who never get invited out, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks, 
you'll be and experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favor, but the favor will be returned. Oh, how it will be returned at the resurrection of God's people. Invite some people who never get invited out, the misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. You'll be and experience a blessing. You'll be and you will experience a blessing. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you would inspire in us as a community and equip us by your Holy Spirit to practice radical hospitality. May we become a community that is marked by our acts of generosity and our acts of hospitality. Lord, help us to be motivated to, to get it right by you, by you. Lord, where we act out of fear, I pray you'd reduce that in us. Lord, ultimately, we long for more of you. Amen.